Well, I think, you know, the, the most important thing when you're covering such huge topics is to make sure that the content is accessible to a wide audience and doesn't speak just to individual disciplines or niche intellectuals um, on, on any given topic. Welcome back to Media Voices, everybody. We take a look at all the news and views from the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. And I'm Peter Houston. And there's no Esther this week because she is putting the finishing touches to our Media Moments 2021 report, which is launching this Wednesday, the 1st of December, with, Peter, I think you fair to say that you'd say it's one of the best lineups you've ever seen <laughs> for an event like this. Well, I was looking at it on Twitter and I think, crap, that's brilliant. I need to make sure I'm going to be at that. <laughs> and then... And then realized it was ours. It's like, oh. So we've got Brian Morrissey, we've got yeah, Charlotte yeah. Tobit, we've got Lucy yeah, Kung. We are yeah. loving it. Um, so they're going to be discussing, I suppose, the past year using the report Media Moments 2021 as a bit of a jumping off point. So if yeah. you do want to, as Peter did, get surprised by the quality of the guest and then <laughs> pop along anyway, you can sign up on Voices.media. That's on Wednesday, the 1st of December. And that clip you heard at the beginning of the episode was from this week's interview with Kathleen Mills, executive editor of LA-based Noema magazine. Noema is a magazine looking at some of the biggest issues of the 21st century, AI, the climate crisis, future democracy and capitalism, modest ambitions there. Um, I spoke to Kathleen about the challenges of publishing in what seems like a pretty highbrow niche, commissioning and editing writers like Yuval Harari and Francis Fukuyama and what? the best part of this <laughs> the best part of this we spoke about the 17th century Duchess of Newcastle and what she has to do with panpsychism which is the idea that everything has elements of consciousness everyone should read this story it was just brilliant before then, though, we're going to get cracking with our main story, and we're going to pose the question, when do newspapers become complicit in greenwashing? So through taking advertising from fossil fuel companies, at what point do our, I suppose, our instances of climate coverage become tainted a little bit by the fact that we are taking money from these fossil fuel companies? And as a corollary of that, is it ever possible for newspapers to just blanket turn down advertising from any angle whether it is from the fossil fuel industry or not trick question the answer is yes because the guardian's already done it so that's the end of the main story for this week but so i mean there's an interesting angle to this piece i think you flagged it up is this quote there from the nyt's international president stephen dunbar johnson who told the drum uh, that we are not an activist organization and therefore and yet... <laughs> right so go on well, I think that just gets right to the root of. I mean, I, the interview with him is is great, and he's he's been very open. I think, um, but he says they're not an activist organisation at the same time as promoting the COP twenty six climate hub coverage. I mean, they were massive at COP twenty six. They had this whole uh, environmental pavilion, and they brought in loads and loads of people, scientists and celebrities, and all sorts. They did an amazing job at COP twenty six. Um, but he's saying they're not an activist organisation, and on that that site on the on the COP twenty six climate hub, it actually says science says that global warming can be slowed if we reduce greenhouse gas emissions sharply. But good intentions alone are not enough. That sounds pretty activisty. 
to me. Yeah, that's that is a, a call to action for everybody to start actually doing this. So at what point then so do I we think have to sort of they've say... They've kind of got a foot in two camps here. Like I said, he was really open. He said, he was really blunt and said, this is a commercial opportunity for us. We're getting subscriptions yeah. off the back of this. We, you know, the climate crisis is... Um, it's borderless, so we're increasing our um, international subscriptions and opportunities for advertising. So all of that, you know, is is just very honest that he's saying that. Does that mean that they should be taking advertising from fossil fuel companies? I don't know. I think it's it does make me slightly uneasy. I I completely understand the. I completely understand the idea that you know you have to, as a news organisation, you have to be funded somehow, whether that be through advertising, subscriptions, combination of both, mix of six. But the idea that you can, you, you're taking money directly from these places, and it could influence your coverage. So there's an implication there that you might have to kind of turn a blind eye to some of their activities. I'm not saying that has happened here. I'm no, saying he was very is... he was very blunt on that. He says it doesn't influence their coverage, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, he would say that, wouldn't he? Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's that it's the idea that we're not an activist organization, which you can't be an well, objective I... observer about something like this. No, exactly. And I think that's the change that's starting to happen here. Mm. Is that idea because it used to be that two sideism, didn't it? It was like, oh, we'll get some crazy old Tory lord on to talk about how climate <laughs> change isn't actually real. But we will get people from the fossil fuel companies saying, well, you know what, we're trying really hard and we're investing in green energy and we're doing this and we're doing that. So you, they're getting a voice in that sense. And, I, you know, from my personal point of view, I drive a diesel car. Yeah. You know, at, at what point can I be jumping up and down saying... Yo, you shouldn't take advertising from Exxon or Shell or BP and oh, but I still need to fill my car up. Yeah, but you, you, even when you're driving your diesel car, you are not advocating and lobbying for kind of the commercial rights of your organization to do damage to the environment effectively. Even if, you know, as a lot of these companies are, they are gradually transitioning to green energy. They're still doing irreparable harm to the environment in the meantime. I, I like the idea that newspapers are taking those guys' money, the kind of the fossil fuel companies, almost <laughs> yeah. like a almost like a um Robin Hood type situation. You know, yeah, they're using their money yeah. to kind of advocate against them. That's it. No, and I and I, I was just gonna say that I think if they're publishing climate critical coverage, let's try saying that three times fast. Yeah. Um and they're funding that by taking money from the fossil fuel companies, then yeah, well done. And but where does it stop? You know, if you don't take fossil fuel advertising or advertising from the fossil fuel companies, should you stop taking advertising from car companies that only make petrol and diesel cars or or that are promoting petrol and diesel mm. cars? Do you take advertising from companies that have, that use plastic? You know, okay. where does that stop? All right, how about this? You do mm. take their money, but you charge them 10 times as much. Ooh. There is, we're levying a tax now on their ability to communicate with the public. I think we just solved the climate crisis. <laughs> <laughs> God, that was so easy. Next Sunday on Armchair CEO, we will be solving the rising cost of print. And now onto News in Brief and onto something that you hadn't necessarily seen before, Peter, which is Twitter Blue's transparent uh, revenue and data share is kind of offering a potential new path for publisher platform relationships. So Twitter Blue, as a subscription product for users, 
uh, those members get ad-free access to content from more than 300 participating publishers, along with other perks like an undo tweet button. Um, <laughs> crucially, that doesn't bypass any paywalls or anything. So kind of the, the, the pitch to publishers has always been very strong. However, they are much more transparent than other platforms have been historically about the rev share and crucially data. So we've got some good quotes in here. So Leaf Entress, who's the EVP of business development and commerce at the LA Times said, while we expect that the paid readership from Twitter Blue will more than offset the revenue we would have generated from digital advertising from the relevant page views, that's not our primary focus. They're talking there about having access to that user data in a way that they haven't had it from other platforms. Right. I mean, I've, I, I knew this was coming and I knew because I, I followed uh, Tony Hale's kind of sale to Twitter of Scroll. Mm. So I knew about it, but I hadn't actually seen much about, you know, the fact that there's 300 publishers signed up. That's pretty good. I I loved what Scroll was doing. Um, we're big fans of Twitter. I, I am I am absurdly fond of Twitter. Yeah, to the point no, where absolutely. I get defensive about it for some yeah, reason. Even yeah. though, even with all its problems, even being a sort yeah, of even like, when you know it's a shit show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, talking mean, about idea. shit shows. <laughs> The BBC. This story was. This story made me really happy, but at the same time, really sad. There must Is be it? a German word for that, being happy and sad at the same mm, time. I don't think so. I, don't sure th- I think the, the German language is kind of very limited. <laughs> happy, sad. Yeah. Um, so the BBC, um, ahead of its centenary next year, uh, is 100 years old in 2022. Mm. Um, has achieved record audience figures. Average weekly audience was 489 million adults. But that's, you know, um, that's impressive. But this next stat is great. Go on then. So in addition to those people, it's added over 20 million <laughs> adults every week who yeah. kind of tune into, I think it's primarily BBC World Service, but still yeah. that is an unbelievable value for money. Yeah, for anyone that's scratching their head about there's only you know there's only a, whatever seventy million people in the UK, <laughs> this is global. Mm. Uh, this is global reach, um, and you know that that idea that the global audience for the BBC is is close to half a billion people, uh, which they hope it'll they'll reach that in twenty twenty two. Yeah, it's more than doubled in the last ten years. That's and it, and, and yet, here's the sad part. Mm. No one loves it, you know. In this country, I mean, people all over the world do love it. I love it, but in this country, it's just constantly getting beaten up and berated. Yeah, from that Nadine, oh, can't even say her name. Nadine, <laughs> Paul Dacre, Christ Almighty. Yeah, it's 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 the punching bag for people if they yeah they see it as being. Well, it has huge amounts of influence just by dint of its sheer scale. So people talk about it as though it is. I, I, we spoke about that earlier about the MIT being kind of an, an activist organization. They act as though the BBC is actively advocating for one side or the other, and it's it's like a fucking um, Rorschach painting. Yeah. You, know, you see in it the face of your own enemy. For the value it delivers and the information it provides uh, globally, hmm. to see it kind of so disparaged. It's pathetic. It's like yeah. people, that Rorschach thing is impressive, though. It's like people, you know the joke, right? What's that? Who's this guy Rorschach? Why the hell does he keep painting pictures of my mum and dad fighting? <laughs> 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 that is good. 
that's Joanna's joke. I have to admit, that's very good. No, it's this- sad. It really is, and it, and you know, fifty million people, something in India, are watching it every week, and yet we are all pissing and moaning about the license fee. Yeah, oh, pathetic. Anyway, maybe the BBC thing. The sorry, the BBC Three thing will make a difference because it will bring in the youth. The youth coming back. See, I thought that was interesting. That more than anything else, that to me seems to be. Uh, representative of our changing understanding of what digital is. So when they cancelled BBC BBC Three originally as a broadcast channel, they said, well, look, all the content's going to be digital. That's where young people tend to consume stuff. And the fact that it's now going back to a broadcast channel makes me think that people have recognised there is much more nuance in terms of these audiences. You know, people will consume stuff where it's a better fit, not because of who they are, but because of what the content is. And finally... This is kind of an interesting read here from Heidi Legg on Press Gazette, who's basically said that US publishers are looking enviously across the Atlantic. And you, and this is a great first bullet point from you there about what you thought it was going to be versus what it actually is, the piece. But I just found that a little strange. And I thought, the headline, you know, yeah. I think I said in the newsletter, I thought, um, just fell this under the grass is always greener uh, folder. <laughs> Yeah, but but reading it, she's got a point. She actually has a point. She talks about the the great days of Fleet Street buccaneering press ownership and um, Beaverbrook and whatever. Mm. And if you get past that nonsense, <laughs> uh, because we all know what they turned into. Um, if you get past that and you look at what she's saying about the likes of Future Tortoise mm. uh, vendors like Axie then yeah, there's there's something going on. And I think it all comes back to this idea that she talks about scrappy startups. I think that narrative is interesting. But actually it comes back to the idea that independent media needs a self-sustaining revenue model. And yeah. maybe in the UK, it's easier for smaller outfits to, to get on with that. You know, in the States where you've got philanthropic giving taking over news you've got Alden capital gutting everything else you've yeah. got the platforms dominating the conversation i think maybe here we've got just a little bit more space to get that set done. i don't know on one level i think this is a headline looking for a story yeah. because <laughs> if you talk you know if you want to talk about those things you talk about axios and local yeah uh, you know manchester mill was funded by substack yeah. um you know it's not are the U- are US publishers looking enviously across the Atlantic? Some of them maybe, but yeah. But it's an interesting piece for what it says, rather than for for that idea. Of the forget forget the US mm. for what it says about UK media. I think is really interesting. And of course, the I suppose the the ideal example there is a little company called Media Voices LLC. Yeah. Which is real? I, I I hear you it's know it. really taking off. <laughs> Boom. Uh, this week's interview is with Kathleen Mills, executive editor of LA-based Noema magazine. Magazine looks at some of the biggest issues currently in the world, from the climate crisis to the future of capitalism. I spoke to Kathleen about all those things, about the challenges of publishing in an intellectual niche. First, I asked her to try and give me a sense of what Noema is all about. Noema is a magazine exploring the transformations sweeping our world. Um, So covering everything from artificial intelligence and the climate crisis 
to the future of democracy and capitalism, we are seeking a deeper understanding of the most pressing challenges of the 21st century. So yeah, not an ambitious uh, mission at all. That must keep you busy. Yes, it surely does. So you've you've come out of, I'm actually asking you the question, did you come out of the work that the Bergeron Institute is doing? Have, have I pronounced that properly? So we are very closely connected to the Bergeron Institute. The Bergeron Institute uh, publishes Noema. And um, in addition to providing the funding that we need, the Institute is also a source of ideas and expertise for us. So while Noema is editorially independent, you will notice if you look into the Institute that a number of the topics that we focus on are also areas of focus for the Institute. So for example, one um, overlapping area of focus is what we call technology and the human, where we focus on technologies that are changing what it means to be human, um, especially genetic engineering and artificial intelligence. Um, another area of focus for both the Institute and Noema is the future of capitalism, where we cover issues like universal basic capital as distinct from universal basic income, um, pre-distribution of wealth, social housing innovations, and uh, other similar exciting uh, topics on the forefront of, of renovating capitalism. Um, and, and then the Institute also offers fellowships each year to fascinating individuals um, studying the issues that it's studying. And then those fellows contribute original essays based on their latest research for Noema. So that, that's um, a great source for us of some really original material. Um, and then beyond the fellows, the Institute staff researchers are experts in their fields, so we get to tap into that wealth of knowledge as well. So it's a it's a very symbiotic relationship. And are you are you guys all in the same building, or actually does that not even matter anymore? Is is everything remote? Well, you know, uh, Noema grew out of first a partnership with HuffPost and then with um, the Washington Post, and so we were in New York for a while, and we still have some people in New York um, for that reason because those two publications are based on the East Coast. Um, so Noema is a little bit more cross uh, country with remote workers, but we do have um, our headquarters in the same place as Noema in uh, downtown LA in the beautiful Bradbury building, which you may have seen in the Blade Runner movies, the original. The, the magazine's mission, <laughs> as you described it, is huge, yeah? Mm-hmm. How, how do you break that down and, uh, you know, ask, <laughs> how do you do your job? You know, how do you produce a magazine that talks to that mission? Well, I think, you know, the, the most important thing when you're covering such huge topics is to make sure that the content is accessible to a wide audience um, and doesn't speak to, just to individual disciplines or niche uh, intellectuals. Um, on, on any given topic. So we commission many writers who already know how to write um, for readers who are not, you know, academics or in a certain discipline, um, but we don't want to limit ourselves to those writers. So one thing that we do is with more academic writers, we have uh, detailed writing guidelines. We send them in advance. And some of those guidelines include, you know, not not including jargon or making sure to include lots of examples to illustrate their point so that it's brought down to the ground and isn't too theoretical. 
And we also encourage including character, narrative, color, humor, um, and uh, even personal anecdotes sometimes to make the piece fun to read and more human. Um, and then also once we get the piece in, we do um, internally often pretty substantial editing um, aimed at tightening up the piece so that it keeps the reader's attention the whole way through. Um, and this often means also sharpening the focus so that the thesis is, is clear pretty quickly and so that the entire piece backs up that, th that one thesis. Um, and it also means an especially close edit to the lead, which obviously is where we have to first win over the reader. Um, and then also I think the artwork, you know, we commission original and really special artwork for each piece and that really enlivens the, the reading experience as well, I think. I mean, that idea of the lead is, is very, very obvious. I just, it was, you know, before we spoke, I had a look at your, your website. And there's a piece where it starts out with the Great Fire of London and the Duchess of Newcastle in the 17th century and Samuel Pepys. And the whole point of that piece is actually, uh, it, it's about this idea that everything has consciousness. But it's, it goes off on this um, this kind of jaunt at the beginning. And I thought, you know, I was significantly into the piece before I thought, OK, I'm actually reading a, a kind of philosophical essay here. Right, exactly. That that lead makes you feel like you're just reading a novel with a really fun character. But actually, it's history, you know, and um, that that's an effective way to start a piece. They don't all have to start that way, but... Yeah, we, we really do emphasize uh, those first few paragraphs as the make or break. Is that something that's in your commissioning process? So do you start with an idea and then find a writer or do you start with a writer and find an idea? Uh, both. Um, you know, a lot of our pieces, we get a fair number of uh, pitches and submissions. Um, and so those outside in pitches uh, can often be some of the most exciting content we publish um, and you know, there are only, I think it's because there, there are only so many of us on the editorial team internally to come up with pitches, whereas there's this vast world out there of, of thinkers and writers with ideas that we'll never think of. So when we get an outside pitch, um, if it's less than four or five, as long as we, as long as it's about four or five paragraphs, um, we can often work with that. Um, sometimes we ask for more detail or an outline or a phone call um, before before, you know, to flush it out before green lighting it. Um, but then we do it the other way too, which is, you know, I call inside out pitches. Um, those come from our staff. We have an idea we want to cover. Usually, usually it's an idea uh, rather than just reaching out to any, any um, writer and just saying, you know, what do you want to write about? But we do that sometimes too, if somebody's written a book or has been talking about a particular idea that we think has more there. Um, so it's kind of like a, a casting agent when you start with the idea though first, because you kind of have to search for the right person to write that idea. And sometimes with someone we've, we've known that's written for us before, sometimes we're reaching out to someone cold. Um, we do that quite a bit because we like to bring in new writers all the time. Some of your writers are fairly well known. What would you, who would you say is your sort of best known? Authors. Uh, well, this ties back to the Bruin Institute a bit because we we do have sort of celebrity intellectuals and also former heads of state um, either interviewed or writing for us um, because of the network of the Bruin Institute. So, you know, everyone from um, Jared Diamond to Francis Fukuyama on the and to Yuval Harari on the celebrity intellectual side to um gordon brown and um jerry uh jerry brown of california california governor um on the political side um 
So, yeah, so, you know, those people, what they say carries a lot of influence and a lot of weight. And so that, that's sort of a different, their voice matters for a different reason than somebody who is a no name but has a, an idea that's stimulating. So just, they're different models and, and we, do, we do both. So when you've, you've got these long form pieces going on, it could be tech or philosophy, whatever it is you're commissioning. And, you know, I was, I, in that, that first article I mentioned, it's a serious article, it's about serious stuff. What's the challenges in publishing into that intellectual niche, you know, the idea of accessibility versus, you know, serious ideas? Well, I mean, I think I've I've said a few of the things we do when it comes to the, the writing guidelines um, for the writers and, and trying to add that color and the artwork. Um, so th that's what we do to make it more accessible. Um, but we have, you know, and I think the packaging too, we call packaging, which is um, the headline, the what we call the deck, which is the one sentence summary underneath the headline. Um, and then the uh, social statuses that go out. All of that is, is another way to uh, reach people and to draw them in with a little tidbit before you're dumping, you know, 5,000 words on them. <laughs> so, um, and again, the artwork too can be another way to draw somebody in to an article that may otherwise um, seem daunting. Um, and another thing we do is we do, um, you know, pull quotes all the way through. So there are, there are ways to grasp um, the content without, if you don't necessarily have like time to read an 8,000 word piece in one go. Um, we try to make it accessible on social and with pull quotes and with images and all of that too, so that, uh, so that you can, you know, do with it what you have time to. Um, <laughs> but we do actually get, we, we actually have quite high, uh, time spent on page. That's one of the analytics that we track. And in the other news outlets that me and my staffers have worked at, you know, it's sort of known that the industry standards about a minute per or less actually per uh, article. Um, of course, it depends on the length, but um, even for long articles, people just, you know, are rushed. They're on their phones. Um, they have a Twitter mindset, <laughs> but of, of so many, only so many characters. Um, but we have pieces that get up to like eight, nine minutes, uh, which means they're reading the whole thing. So, um, so again, that goes back to the editing of just making sure that every single paragraph is uh, tight and doesn't have redundancies or un unnecessary information that starts to bore the reader. You've talked a couple of times about the art that you run with the content. What's what's your thinking when you're commissioning art? Is it it's got to be original? It's got to support the 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 ideas and the, the the ideas being discussed in the piece. How do you approach that? Actually, what comes to mind is something that I think might help just taking a step back and, and talking about what the art is depicting first. And, and what I'm thinking of is this review that was written recently of Noema that described us as covering meta issues, um, which uh, is exactly right. What the reviewer meant is that we publish pieces that take the 30,000 foot view of big intertwined issues. So given that, our art style is pretty abstract and open to interpretation. Um, it varies, but we tend to not commission many art pieces that are literal cartoons of a very specific topic. Instead, our artists often depict metaphors of or parallels to the topic. Um, it gives a reader a different way to think about the topic that complements the essay, but also adds a layer of interpretation 
I think that that's kind of the vague idea that we have going into. And is that built in at the beginning of the process? So when someone's writing, you've, you've got someone doing the art or do you wait until the article's done and then you get the art? Yeah, not only do we wait until it's done, but we also uh, wait until we've done a fair amount of editing because, as I mentioned, we often are editing it. It can be substantial, so the piece looks can look quite different after the edit process. Um, so... And then we also do the packaging before we send it to the, um, not all the packaging, but at least the headline and a subhead um, before we send it to the artist. And that's key because the, um, the artwork always appears alongside the headline and the subheadline. So they really need to speak to each other. And, and so what happens is our art coordinator finds the artist um, who she and the editor of the piece think has a style and tone that matches um, that of the written piece and reaches out to them with the written draft um, with that headline and deck in there. And then um, if the artist is on board, they will then send a handful of black and white sketches for the art um, coordinator to pick from. Um, she does this with the editor since it's really crucial that the art doesn't misrepresent the nuances of the piece. Um, and then the art coordinator discusses color palette, especially if it's for print uh, and the art the artist creates what, what then at that point, if we're lucky, could be the final draft of the art. So it's a, it's, it's a pretty thorough process, um, but the result is, is, is beautiful. It actually sounds like a properly old school magazine craft approach. I know you're in print as well as on the web, but most people just go to Unsplash and find some stock photos and that would be it. Well, I think it makes a difference. Again, it, it, you're conveying when somebody sees on social media or in a newsletter or on Google or in an email even um, uh, the image and they can tell it's something special and different than what you just see. Even, even in fabulous publications like the New York Times, a lot of the art is kind of cartoony because they're, they're, you know, they're creating impressively a massive amount of content every day, including a print paper every day. So they don't really have time to do the level that we're talking about here. Um, so when you see a, a piece of art that stands out as different, you're signaling to the reader, this content is also different. This content also probably had the same level of care that was put into the image, um, into the text. And so you're, you know, you're kind of preparing them to sit back and read something special and not just like skim a daily news hit. Yeah, absolutely. So you're, you're on the web, but you're also in print once a year. How do you decide what you're going to put in that annual? Throughout the year, we keep a list of pieces that we think really stand out. Um, and then at the end of each calendar year, we, we also get uh, about a dozen, often I think I mentioned really strong essays from the Burgoon Institute Fellows. That happens at the end of each year. Um, and so several of those tend to make it into print as well. And then by the time the new year starts, um, which we're coming up on now, um, since our issues come out in the spring slash summer, it's around the start of the calendar year that our list of print contenders starts to come into focus. So, you know, remember that because we're covering great transformations that sweep hundreds of thousands of years, our content tends to be pretty evergreen, um, which is why once a year makes sense for print. And so, our annual edition is an archive of some of our most noteworthy and evergreen pieces each year. I've only seen photographs, but the production values are pretty high. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's and that's another reason why once a year <laughs> makes more sense. It's it's a book. It's a two. It's a, essentially a book. It's two hundred pages. And again, going back to the signaling, just touching it, looking at it, um, you can tell that this is uh, not a churned out uh, weekly or even monthly magazine that that you can just flip through and throw on the pile of magazines that you know stacks up this is something that's more like a book that you're going to want to read probably front to finish no it looks beautiful um you've been at noema for for how long how long have you been now well we only just launched noema a couple years ago so um i've been with the world post uh which is what we sort of uh started as uh, since well, it's been about seven years. Um, so, but the the has only been around for a couple right. of years so far. So that was the original collaboration with the Huffington Post or with the Washington Post. Yeah, started off with HuffPost for a few years. We were in the newsroom there in New York with them, and then we um, moved over to be with the Washington Post for another couple of years. Now you're your own thing. You're separate from those guys. Um, how does that compare the job that you're doing now with what you were doing before? Well, it's pretty different. Um, the content, I mean, the topics that, that we've chosen to focus on have remained the same, but the biggest difference is time. When you work for a news outlet like HuffPost or the Washington Post, you're beholden to the 24-hour news cycle. It dictates both what you cover and also how long you have to work on a piece before you have to publish it. Um, so that means, of course, that there's not often not time to dig as deeply as you might want into complex matters and, and to place them into historical context. And it also means, you know, that there's not time to work with writers who may have brilliant, unique ideas, but may need pretty substantial editing. Those types of writers get looked over or passed over at daily newspapers because they just have time, have time to work with them. Um, but at Noema, because we're a nonprofit and we're not beholden to clicks, we can take more chances and dare to dig into topics that um, often get neglected. So in other words, like instead of chasing what's in the conversation, we're, we're trying to start conversations um, often. And um, yeah, so this means, you know, covering some some somewhat wonky topics at times and then some often being surprised that, that they really resonate and, and get a whole lot of traffic. Um, so one example is, you know, taking that feeling that we all had of pandemic time being warped and um, placing it in historical and scientific context alongside a theory that, you know, we need to redefine time so that it's less tyrannical over our lives. Um, you know, these types of essays, the one you were referencing uh, earlier about, about everything having elements of consciousness, they take months to write and edit. And we feel, you know, we feel really privileged to be able to have that time. Do you ever miss the speed that you were working at before? Does it ever feel like it's taking too much time? No, I don't miss the speed. I mean, it still does feel when you're when you're publishing week in and week out, which is which is what we're doing multiple pieces each week and putting out that big and ambitious of a print a magazine every year, which is it's basically imagine publishing a book every year um, with lots of art and collaborating with, you know, dozens of people. It's it's still a lot of work. So we're we're really busy. We still feel like we're chasing our tails. It's just a different chase it's like a bigger track you know instead of running around 200 meters you're running around eight mile track or something but you're still the pace is still feels fast your work in progress spreadsheet must be insane 
<laughs> it is. We have many tabs and many rows. It's, it's yeah, we, we rely on Excel heavily. Uh, we end every interview asking our guests for a recommendation for media that's affected them or that they've loved recently. What would you what would you recommend to our listeners? Uh, so in the pandemic, you know, some people developed a hobby of baking bread or playing an instrument. And for me, it was, I got into birds, um, ornithology and I, I picked up, it's not a new book, but it, it's not terribly old either. But, um, I discovered Richard Prum, who's a ornithologist at Cornell and, um, read something online by him. And I just found it so fascinating that I picked up his book, Evolution of Beauty, which, uh, which is very actually similar to Noema's approach because it, it's, history tied in with um the science of now so he talks about darwin's you know how we misinterpret darwin's theory of mate choice and how mate choice has shaped the beauty of birds um and what we need to correct and you know just just reading about beautiful birds and the magic of evolution is is a wonderful way to to disconnect from you know <laughs> the political, <laughs> yeah, the horror of the pandemic. And also here in the U S those years, those the last couple of years have been pretty tumultuous politically. So to just connect with birds and beauty and history and um, evolution is, is pretty wonderful. And while we can't promise that we'll talk about panpsychism, we are going to be discussing our upcoming Media Moments 2021 report, which is going to be out very shortly on the 1st of December. And you can get that and also listen to a bunch of amazing panelists discuss it by coming along to voices.media. So we have, as Peter said at the start, a, a panel of luminaries, including Brian Morrissey, Charlotte Tobit and Lucy Kung, who are going to be discussing highlights from the Media Moments 2021 report this Wednesday. So do come along to that and you can go to voices.media to sign up. It's free. If nothing else, it'll be really cool to hear other people talking. Um, and if you like what we do, you can head over to that website, voices.media, and go through to our coffee page and give us some of your hard-earned cash. You could give us a £3 one-off donation yeah it's cheap as three pounds i think i think it's, it's but also don't let that stop you if you want to go no higher, absolutely go no, higher the sky's you know, the limit sky's the limit three pound you know three. <laughs> no well, job is too big no it. fee is too big <laughs> you'll come and clean your kitchen <laughs> and talking of the stuff we do the publisher podcast award entries are still open they are open until december the 10th we've had some fantastic entries in already but we do want to hear what your organizations are doing if you're a publisher who publishes podcasts so go along to publisherpodcastawards.com to get your entries in now but until next week when we'll be back again do stay safe and thank you for listening come back esther always forgiven <laughs>